substrate. The substrate may require, as to the cleft, some type of localizational changes, ionization, i.e. pH. Might also require the interaction of molecular water to provide protons and hydroxyl groups. You must understand that there might be also, most probably, a covalent intermediate where part of the substrate, where the whole substrate, or part of the resulting uh, product from the substrate is going to be covalently interlinked with the enzyme, forming the acyl enzyme complex. And that's all we're going to have a look at today and get a clear orientation. So we're using the example of chymotrypsin. We already know it has a need to have an aromatic amino acid uh, to recognize, and the enzyme cleft coordinates in the cleavage of the carboxylic acid or the peptide bond to produce a carboxylic acid, resulting in the release, ultimately, of an aromatic amino acid uh, at the C-terminal end. That's the definition and selectivity of that particular enzyme. So let's have a closer look of what's actually occurring in chymotrypsin with our substrate. Two amino acids, it could be actually much longer, be a protein, could be a peptide. But it has that aromatic, aromatic coordinator. That aromatic coordinator is the first step to allow the substrate to bind to the enzyme correctly. And here we have the hydrophobic pockets within the um, enzyme cleft with the appropriate amino acids, which are going to do all the hard work. And remember, they have to be in the exact position and orientation to allow this to occur. And as you can see, 193, 195, and 57, and uh, 140, 162, those amino acids, some of them are distal, some of them are close together. But those four amino acids are really essential to this reaction. And if we disrupt their precise alignment in this structure, the enzyme's not going to do its work fully. It might do some of the work. It might actually hold itself, holding on to a part of the substrate and not releasing it because it can't have that other reaction that causes destabilization and release of the substrate. It might not even cause the cleavage. It might actually reject the substrate. So again, I'm trying to stress this issue of those amino acids, and we're talking n uh, nano and strong, you know, 10 to the minus, I think it's 12 or a meter, in regards to their capacity to orientate themselves. And again, everything else on chymotrypsin is basically an accessory to get these amino acids in that correct position. So, we have this hydrophobic pocket which is going to recognize the hydrophobic amino acids. You should know your hydrophobic amino acids. So what we're going to see is that first a complex in regards to the selectivity to the hydrophobic core, and then orientating correctly this 
region here, that peptide bond here, because this is what we're going to actually cleave, with the histidine, the serine, and the glycine. And it's those three amino acids, particularly that, and also that specific, that very specific hydroxyl group, that is going to be a key intermediate player and actually going to covalently link the uh, substrate to the peptide. So here we have the peptide going in and now orientating itself correctly to the cleft. So obviously we might have a big long chain of amino acids coming out, but it's this little part that that enzyme cleft selects for. And in this case, what we see is like we've seen previously with the hydroxyl group of the serine and the interaction with the histidine, basically a transfer of the lone pair of electrons to form a covalent bond on the uh, cardinal group of the peptide bond and then for this to play a role in interacting with the amino group of the serine. So we have this, what we call a catalytic triad, where basically it is the start, the catalytic reaction, to allow us to cause the cleavage to occur. So we've now gone to the cleavage component in regards to utilizing the electrons uh, from the histidine to move them down and allow us to actually now have an interaction occurring with the peptide backbone and the carbon of the oxygen group on the peptide backbone now forming a covalent bond with the serine. Once that's occurred, we get a destabilization with the triad here with the amino function of the serine, which is also provided the hydroxyl group, and glycine 153. That then causes a chain of events in regards to now destabilizing this situation to move the electrons to here and to form a form of bond in regards to allowing us to then produce a alpha amino terminal. Because at the moment, that is not an alpha amino terminal. We have to cleave this bond and give it a potential to uh, uh, attach a hydrogen or a proton in that particular constituent to give you the first product. And again, that is going to be at the expense of the histidine. As we move through, in regards to now, that destabilization and that cleavage will then cause the release of the first product. Both products don't release. The first product is that C-terminal fragment that does not contain the aromatic amino acid at that region where we're cleaving. So in this case, we can actually trace by using a radio-labeled serine, um, in, oh, sorry, radio-labeled histidine in regards to finding out where that hydrogen has come from. So that's actually come from the histidine moiety and allow us to produce the C-terminal amide. I'm sorry, alpha amino function. But in the process, we have a very fleeting transitional component which is going to now covalently be bound to the enzyme. That's what we call the acyl enzyme intermediate. And this guy basically is now linked, the remaining part of the peptide chain containing the aromatic amino acid is now linked to the serine uh, by one, a covalent bond on the side chain of the serine and also by a hydrogen-oxygen interaction 
with a serine amino function. But this is a covalent interlinkage. It's not ionic, it's not hydrophobic, so there's a hydrophobic contributor to it. We have now got this particular intermediate to now also now release. But in the process, we must regenerate the original histidine ionization, the serine hydroxyl, and the amino uh, component of the serine in regards to allowing it to then accept another subject. That's, a, that's the definition of an enzyme. So now what we have is molecular water now coming in to play a role in that cleft. If we didn't have water, it wouldn't work. So in this case, we have the uh, oxygen with the lone pair electrons coming in to be able to be interactive with both the uh, peptide or the carboxylic acid of the amino acid that contains the aromatic uh, component and now also providing a source of hydrogen or protons for the histidine to be allowed to be deprotonated. So in this reaction, we have the molecular water doing two things, cleaving off, allowing to have that hydrogen interaction, and allowing also to form an intermediate again, which is going to be basically destabilizing, and hopefully in the next stage, we will then cleave this bond, regenerate the carboxylic acid, and regenerate the histidine. So now we have this very short-lived component where it's all coming together. The molecular water is covalently attached. It's providing the electrons to the interaction for the uh, uh, positive charge uh, nitrogen there to get it to be protonated. It's stretching a little bit of the hydroxyl group of the serine, but requiring also now a stabilization of that 190, uh, 193 uh, glycine to play a role in basically assisting in its stabilization to form this uh, intermediate short-lived complex. So as we move forward, we're going to see a deterioration of this and the breakage of that particular bond, allowing us to then form this bond and then cause a release, hopefully, of the substrate, the final part of the substrate. So here we go. We've now moved it up. We've gone from here, our previous slide, and now we have regenerated importantly the serine. So we've got our active site back in regards to that serine production and ideally the histidine's interaction. We've got now the serine amino function still interacting with that carboxylic acid of the remaining aromatic substrate. So that's still being held together in regards to some non-covalent interactions now. So these are all non-covalent. It's gone from this covalent to a non-covalent. So we go here, we have covalent interactions. And now we've gone and broken that bond, re-established the serine hydroxyl position and its histidine-histidine interaction, and allowing that basically to be then reprimed now for the next substrate. But we still have to get rid of the um, complex because it's still in its non-ionic hydrophobic interaction. 
And once we start getting to this stage, we're going to cause the start of this destabilization of the hydrophobic pocket, which is going to ideally just turn a little bit and cause then the release of the hydrophobic amino acid and ultimately cause the dissociation of this guy here to allow us to have our carboxylic acid, the carboxylic acid happening there, and the release of the carbon, which is the next stage. So here we now have the release of the N-terminal side of the peptide fragment that will contain the aromatic amino acid. And we now have, again, back to the start, the three components in regards to allowing us to reaccept a new substrate that's going to go through the same process of recognizing the hydrophobic pocket, interacting with the glycine serine histidine, that serine becomes extremely important in regards to providing that single hydroxyl orientation with the histidine to allow the triad to form, to work on that carbonyl group of that C-terminal end, releasing the first product, which is the C-terminal amino acid, because now you've got the hydrogens that are coming from the histidine, and allowing you then to cause the whole process to com co co collapse to produce again the carboxylic acid and the second. Now, I want you to be able to appreciate, importantly, the sequential steps in the sense that you have selectivity. Each of these steps are going to have their own kinetic rate, which we sum up basically going from um, E plus S to become the ES complex, and then to the EP. In this case, the P is actually two products, right? one substrate, and we're now producing two products, two separate uh, peptide fragments or protein fragments. Now, trypsin is classified as a protein serine protease because of that key role of serine. Now, uh, you can think about compounds that may either selectively uh, compete in this particular system, which might have an aromatic amino acid, but might capture and cause destabilization or a permanent bond occurring maybe where the substitution of that carboxylic acid or the carbonyl group of a substrate, indicating that you're going to form a complex covalently, which is going to be more stringent and maybe irreversible to remove under the normal histine-serine uh, cleavage mechanism. That becomes a competitive inhibitor. We can have potential non-competitive inhibitors who are going to interact with other parts of the enzyme and allow us to contort the structure of the three-dimensional cleft and potentially interrupting the initial binding in regards to the uh, um, hydrophobic pocket, but also elements that might cause change in the structure to then alleviate the distances between this uh, three amino acids that are required for this reaction. So again, emphasizing the importance of structure and function. So we have to go through the process of potential induced fit. The cleft might not be 
ideal for the binding of our substrate initially, but as we go through those particular reactions, reactions there's going to be a more uh, sustained interaction of an energy as well as an interaction in the sense of covalent ionic hydrobonding. So that's where we have that issue of induced fit. We have the electrophiles and the neutrophiles in regards to providing us the capacity to produce the ES complex. Again, with the electron transfer, the electron acceptance, we can produce these fleeting um, low energy, in most cases, low energy covalent bonds that have the capacity to cause that structural conformational change in the substrate. We have other enzymes that have the capacity to hold on a chemical functionality, as I said before. Go through this sole whole process, releasing a substrate, and then allowing that a new substrate to come in. It could be the same substrate or a different substrate in regards to then an exchange or a transfer of a holding group, a group function, onto that particular substrate. So that's how we're going to see some of the occurrences in uh, glycology when we look at the glycolytic cycle. Again, we have this transient uh, acyl enzyme um, intermediate, which indicates there is a clear covalent bond interaction. And there's some other bits and pieces that you can look through. We talked about the acid-base catalysis uh, previously. So that gives that lecture a finish. So this is the final lecture in regards to the examinational content for examination number one. We will continue on Friday with new content which will be on examination two. And the exam is scheduled for Wednesday, correct? Friday. Monday's a holiday, right? Yeah. Yes. You got homework, right? New homework's about to be given, right? No? Okay. Why would they ask me that? I was asking something. I get you sick. Yeah, it's going to be given, but it's not going to be done. So, today, we're going to look at what the pharmaceutical industry, the drugs that you take, pharmaceutical in regards to their major, and also some legal books too, a major issue in regards to modifying and regulating an enzyme, a function, a form, changing the rate of that enzyme either into the positive or into the negative, or causing potentially complete inhibition. So we've seen a little bit already, remember we looked at PKU, the aromatic amino acid deficiency with the phenylalanine hydrolase, hydrolase. That situation is an enzyme reaction. So if we control that single process of limiting the production of those phenyl, uh, phenyl um, derivatives because they're accumulating, they're not going to produce tyrosine. And accumulating in the baby's bloodstream, and they then produce those phenyl derivatives, which are toxics. We can prohibit those. We have a, a billion dollar drug. Okay, they still haven't worked it out because, unfortunately, that mechanism does a lot of other.
transposed hydroxyl groups. We've got to be very careful when we look at inhibition what we actually inhibit. Because though it might work in your lab system on the bench, I found the wonder drug, yes. Most drugs fail based on their toxicity in other systems. So it's very hard for us to actually design highly specific drugs. But this is where we've gone back to nature. In the last five years, 10 years, natural products have risen again. They keep coming back every usually about 20 years in regards to a drug maybe you might have heard called Taxol. Okay, that's an enzyme. Um, we have other drugs which, like with uh, the amount of money being put into HIV and AIDS, we have a lot of drugs that are also serine proteases, which prohibit certain cleavages of a virus protein interaction. So again, we've come to the stage where we've been able to utilize our knowledge in biochemistry and have great applications. And also these have applications in animals, obviously, and also in plants. Think about um, some of the herbicides. So you've heard of some of these uh, herbicides uh, that kill bees, right? What happens, they have cross-reactivity. They affect their particular enzymes to kill them. So we're gonna look at specifically today the uh, regulation of enzymes and impact on kinetics, and specifically allosteric regulation or allosteric modulation, which is the main thing we want to look at in the control of your metabolic pathways. Because we don't want the enzymes running 100% every single day when you don't need potentially that substrate or that product, the substrate being consumed or the product being produced. You want to be able to selectively and specifically regulate and this is going to be a throat process in regards to receiving feedback from the rest of your biological system to say, hey, look, I need that substrate to go elsewhere. I don't need, don't need to consume it. I'm going to regulate the enzyme that normally consumes it. Or, hell, I need that product. I need that product because I need a stress situation. I need something being produced. I'm going to accelerate the production of that product. So there's always going to be a seesaw, a yin and a yang in regards to what you commit to by regulation. And also going to look specifically at covalent modification. And we've talked already a bit about this in regards to changing the three-dimensional structure by adding charges and then enzyme cleavage as a way to regulate enzymes. That's crazy. Enzymes upon enzymes upon enzymes. But it's actually a very common feature in a biological system. I want to talk a little bit about the blood clotting cascade, as I said, that has a personal uh, effect to me. So, we have a chain of reactions that we saw basically in the chymotrypsin. And each of those particular steps, we could potentially modulate or control that individual chemical reaction. What we ideally want to do is have a natural substrate or an, and a natural regulational process, which is very fine-tuned to the needs of energy and products for processing and producing, ultimately, more energy. So we're going to see a number of these pathways to basically find control and adjust based on the requirements of the cell. And that's going to be through a process of feedback. So when we see our reactions, our enzyme reactions, we're going to see 
little stop signs and green triangles. Little stop signs are going to be compounds that are going to be uh, inhibiting or regulating and slowing down the enzyme kinetics of that particular uh, reaction, where the triangles and the associated compounds with those triangles are going to actually increase the process of that enzyme. So, good example. If you've not had breakfast now, you're pulling out your, hopefully, you might be running on empty about now, maybe about two hours ago, you might be basically running on empty. You've used all your glycogen storage, and we'll talk about glycogen storage later on. You're now regulating your system to say, okay, hell, I've run out of sugar, I'm gonna have to start making sugars, where am I get those sugars from? You're gonna get them from fats and from amino acids. Hell, I'm gonna have to regulate, why do I need to have glycolysis occurring? I need that to make energy, but I need to also go through a process to produce glucose to feed that glycolytic pathway. We'll come more in depth for that in coming weeks. So, most of our systems, when we look at the metabolism of the compounds we're gonna look at, are multi-enzyme systems. And it's usually the first enzyme is what we call the rate-limiting step in regards to, you know, your kids are basically going to school and they're still brushing their teeth and it's 10 minutes to school starts. They're the regulating step. You're ready to go. They get thrown in the car and thrown at the school, but they're brushing their teeth and taking their time. So you need to be able to regulate them to actually get a better efficiency and rate. So different enzymes along the path also may affect that initial regulator through a process of feedback. And we're gonna see uh, the different levels of our substrate move through an enzyme pathway. So if there's a massive amount of substrate being produced, obviously we might see a component of an enzyme with a fixed rate taking that massive amount of substrate and slowly degrading it. Not degrading the same amount that it was actually provided um, at the same efficiency and rate. Because remember, each enzyme has different rates. So the first enzyme is what we call the rate limiting step. So it is best for us to kind of control and regulate that first rate step in regards to allosteric modulation and the effectors, but also covalent modification. And that covalent modification is really important. It's also done by an enzyme, the example we're gonna use and it basically gives us a fine tune, but this particular process is so dominant and so um, non-selective in many ways. It has selective enzymes to do the job, but ultimately, it's a very common process. So let's have a look at some allosteric modulation. We have a protein, an enzyme, and this guy basically has a interactive site with two components. We're going to have a substrate component coming in with the enzyme cleft, and we're going to have a modulator. What that modulator does is basically opens up or changes the shape of the cleft to allow the substrate to bind efficiently in the initial step. So here we have 
the receptor and the enzyme player in its inactive state. The word inactive, we've got to be very careful because no enzyme is really fully switched off. Remember, we're not just talking about one single molecule. We're talking about many, many, many hundreds of thousands of these proteins sitting and waiting for their substrate and being regulated. Some may not be regulated. There might be just a very low idle, so to speak, going on in your body. So each regulator is going to have a very specific modulator. So in this case, we're going to see specific interactions with the receptor at a distance place to allow us now to cause a three-dimensional structural change in our protein structure to allow us to obtain great binding, low energy binding in regards to producing an active substrate uh, in regards to binding to the enzyme. So here we have now an active enzyme substrate complex as long as that modulator is there, this guy is going to be consuming substrate time and time and time again. As soon as that modulator is removed, and this could be an issue of decreasing the concentration of the modulator, remember the KA and the KD, the association, or it could also be even more complex where there's another site on this particular receptor where another compound, which might have a much higher affinity then the modulator, actually low concentration, comes along and binds to it, and then causes a three-dimensional structural change to then impact the modulating binding site. That comes off, and then obviously we now have an issue with the substrate binding site changing and becoming now inactive. So this is a conformational three-dimensional change. So think about you know, our protein structures, our alpha helices, our anti-power beta sheets, our clef, not just a simple box. But this is how it's illustrated in the book. So we have a presence and absence of a modulator. We have changes in three-dimensional structure and shape. And we give us these changes to give us the active or inactive enzyme complex. We have some definitions we need to think about. We have the homotropic allosteric regulators. This is where basically both the regulator and substrate are on the same complex. So like this is a uh, homotropic. Heterotropic, as I said, might have uh, positive and negative components in regards to another modulational site or protein interaction, which requires an additional component to undertake the removal of the, of the modulator and impacting then the enzyme site. So here we have aspartate transcarbonylase, a very complex protein in regards to having symmetry as different clusters. We have uh, two or three different um, two or three different subunits. But they all come together in regards to why well, is not that working? Okay, it's like wrong. Um, in regards to all those individual subunits have their own individual regulators. So allowing them to have one go of regulation, another go, and another go. And the issue is, you may need to have all those sites filled with the regulator to get the regulation of that enzyme. It might be what they call an all or none situation. But remember what we see with hemoglobin, where you have one binding site, a 
affecting another binding site, it's KD and KA affinity, we're going to see the same thing happening here. So again, there's going to be a sequential order that is required to allow regulation. And again, it gives us the capacity to fine-tune and target the regulation of our particular enzyme. So in this case, we have three catalytic chains, uh, two clusters, three uh, regulatory clusters at each regulatory chain. So we've got a lot of regulation to occur. And again, this particular enzyme with that carbonyl group transfer is really, really important. But you don't want to have it happen to every single time you have a, a spartic acid being present. You only want this reaction to occur when you need that transfer to degrade specific uh, spartic acids or spartic acid uh, concentrations when you need that reaction to occur. That's why you're going to have multiple levels of regulation. And we see this time and time again with reactions that are really crucial because we do not want to have them going out of control. Um, as I said before, the end product could provide you the process of feedback. So we'll see this when we look at our energy balances in making um, in consuming glucose. So we're going to make a compound which is going to go through a number of pathways from the degradation of glucose, extracting, extrapolating ATP as we go. And what we're going to find as we increase the concentration of this end compound, we're going to see it move into another pathway. That other pathway, that first enzyme in that other pathway is a regulator enzyme. And he's going to decide whether you need to make energy or not. And if he does not need to make energy, that compound coming from the glycolytic pathway is going to start increasing its concentration. And as it increases its concentration, that concentration is then going to act that compound in this concentration is going to act on the first enzyme that causes production. That's a process of negative feedback. So it helps with all of that. So end product inhibition is dependent on the concentration of its product. That's the definition in regards to the enzyme function to then cause regulation by a feedback situation. Ultimately, it will slow down or decrease the product being produced until, ideally, all the other parts of the pathway have either been depleted or have caught up with that regulatory component. So you think of our chain of events, okay? Um, if there is going to be too much substrate being produced by one reaction and another, we're gonna go down and slow down their production until those parts become depleted in regards to the efficiency of those two enzyme reactions, okay? So we're gonna get these types of feedback coming in. They can be very complex. So here we have an amino acid, threonine. Now threonine, as we'll look at the, towards the end of the lecture series in this class, where we look at amino acid metabolism, we can take our non-essential amino acids, and that's why they're called non-essential amino acids, and we can actually uh, modify them to make other amino acids. The essential amino acids we cannot make, but we can degrade and produce other things from them. But in this case, we have 
the activity of a threonine dehydrolase basically is an enzyme process with one, two, three, four, five steps, five enzymes being involved to allow us to produce an amino acid of isoleucine. In this case, the concentration of isoleucine as it increases because there's demand for this at the degradation of threonine, it's not going to impact enzymes one to two because they're gonna be basically non-regulated components dependent on how much of A, B, C, and D is present. As soon as they be given B, they're gonna shoot through and produce isoleucine. If they're given it as an intermediate with hit more in D, it's gonna produce isoleucine. But as we increase our isoleucine concentration, it's gonna allosterically modulate a three-dimensional structure of the threonine Hydrolates, dehydrolates. And that's where we see this little X here. So the concentration starts increasing. We've satisfied our need for isoleucine, for whatever reason we needed before. And we're now going to cause the inhibition of the degradation of the threonine by interacting and causing a modulation of that E1. So the activity of the threonine dehydrolase is inhibited by the concentration of isoleucine is a heterotrophic allosteric inhibition in regards to it has only that component. Once that's present there, it's going to be bang. It binds non-covalently to a covalent covalently covalently to the regulatory site, indicating that there's going to be a three-dimensional structural change at a distant region which is going to impact Ideally, the active site of the three hydrates, dehydrates. So again, we've got this allosteric modulation at a distant site, changing the three-dimensional structure of the heat, the dehydrolase, and then causing its shutdown. So again, there's a balance. So, but again, if we start moving along and we start decreasing the concentration of isoleucine, the isoleucine is going to come off through its equilibrium constant in regards to its affinity on the uh, 3D dehydrolase site, regulatory site, once that's gone back off, the hydrolase enzyme is going to actually then continue its work. So again, it's a process of regulation. So again, dependent on the production of the product. And we're going to see this time and time again. The principles are going to be uh, repeated. But what does that do on the kinetic process? So here we have an example of our uh, velocity plot in regards to two states where we have a low activity transitional state and a high activity resting state. As you can see, when we add the regulatory component into providing a cooperative interaction, we can either move it to here or to here, in anywhere in between, in regards to it being, you know, capacity to give that process either a bump or shut it down. We find, importantly, the KMs are going to change, as well as the Vmaxes because that's the process of regulation. We're gonna change 
the Michaelis-Menten constant in some of these enzymes, and we're going to change usually the main reason, sorry, not my mistake, we're not going to change the Michaelis-Menten equation, possibly we're going to change the, the max value, my mistake. So allosteric modulation in the positive component is going to give us a non-Michaelis-Menten relationship. We don't get this you know, beautiful uh, sigmoidal plot that we've seen previously. We get something like, ah, oh, and it's hard to determine what the Vmax is. So it's a non-hyperbolic curve, and we're able to, in this case, define ultimately what the Km value is in this particular modulated state. But once we remove that modulation, it's going to go back to the Km value of the unregulated enzyme. So this basically provides us the capacity to have a very small amount of modulator present for a change in modulation to give us very significant impact on the rate of activity. So that's a really important issue in regard to controlling uh, the process. So meaning you don't need much regulator or modulator present to cause a major impact on the production of your product. Now, the heterotropic components in allosteric modulation, again, follow some very weird components where you're going to see different uh, Km values. Well, we don't call them Km, we call them 0.5 values because we know we've still actually got the right Km value for the enzyme. It's just being regulated and modulated, which is going to change the Vmax plot. So we've got the Vmax. But from our definitions, we can say this is now the Km of the modulated enzyme. This is the Km of the positive modulated enzyme, so the negative and the positive. So you can see, here's our normal Vmax plot, and we can see what happens. If we're going to get positive modulation, we're going to see an increase in the Vmax capacity. We're going to see an increase in the production product. To get that same concentration might take us much longer if we're modulating it in the negative. So again, we have this change in reaction velocity in regards to what we see with a simple shift of our Vmax plot, either positive or negative. It gets worse in regards to having multiple, and this is what we actually do. We will first define the enzyme's Km Vmax without anything. No regulators, no inhibitors. When we start doing our experiment, we're going to be able to determine whether it's in the positive or the negative in regards to being able to measure the production of the product and see how the kinetic process of that product has been impacted by the addition of that regulator. So is it a positive or negative regulator? So even being able to give us Vmax capacity, you know, changing the Km and all this other stuff, we're going to see these types of plots being moved in regards to the regulator. So that's pretty easy understanding to say, okay, my Vmax plot's going to change. I'm going to either regulate, decrease their Vmax capacity, or we're going to increase it. Unlike what we see with enzymes where we've degraded them and basically destroyed their capacity to even take the substrate, what are we going to see on a Vmax plot? Anyone? If we've heated our enzyme up and we throw substrate at it, what are we going to see? Drops to what? Bingo. It's dead. It's going nowhere. And again, this is this final, this very fine balance of structure and activity. You start adding 
things like heat, catatrophic agents are going to start impacting dramatically in a very, very, very fine region the function of your enzyme. This one is an illustration of one of the most important covalent modulations that occur. And they occur using another enzyme on an enzyme. In this case, the addition of a phosphate group from its donor, the substrate, ATP, to produce ADP. So here we have an enzyme which is going to have a process to produce an enzyme phosphorylation. A specific site in that enzyme is going to be targeted by another enzyme. In this case, the addition is a phosphokinase, and we're going to look at a lot of phosphokinases in glycolysis. These guys are going to specifically consume ATP, producing ADP, and cause the transfer of that phosphate group to that enzyme. Look what it brings to the party. Two negative charges. So we have an enzyme site, which previously didn't have maybe a neutral charge, because look at the amino acids it's working on. Threonine, serine, and tyrosine, histidine, we know that has a charge. But we can phosphorylate these four amino acids by this particular phosphokinase and cause the addition of these two negative charges. What's that going to do to the structure? It's going to change it. Because remember, now you've got these two charges there, which weren't previously there. They might kink a uh, anti-parallel beta sheet. They may distort an alpha helix. And remember, if we distort that structure, what are we going to do? We're going to change or impact the function of that enzyme. So covalent modification, porn class, enzyme regulated, modification of a chemical functional group that goes onto, and there's a number of these, we'll have a look at another one a little later on. And this is really key. If you look at anything in cancer, or uh, molecular biology in regards to genes, you're going to see this process of phosphorylation in the product, the enzymes that regulate the genes, or the downstream component of phosphorylation and dephosphorylation, because some enzymes also require phosphorylation for their function. So you have another enzyme that comes along to remove that phosphorylation group. So here you have an enzyme doing its job, it becomes phosphorylated and serine. Changes its three-dimensional structure, it's regulated, it's not doing its job. Another enzyme comes along, which in this case is a phosphatase, comes along, takes off that phosphate group, the enzyme now does its job. But the vice versa happens. An enzyme that has a phosphorylation job, a phosphorylation position, and it's working its job, doing its well, it doesn't need an issue of regulation and control until there's some feedback issues, and you're going to have a phosphatase come along, take the phosphate group, change the three-dimensional structure, you've now got regulation. But now you want that enzyme to be functional because the substrate it's producing is now decreased, you're going to get then a phosphokinase coming along, putting back on the phosphate group, and then the enzyme doing its job. So you've got this dual purpose. There may be different enzymes doing it, but again, the issue of regulation, whether you need that phosphate group to allow you to have a reactive enzyme or non-reactive enzyme without a phosphate group. So again, it causes structural activity. And these are sites we see with those threonine, serine, 
tyrosine and histidine are in the active site of the enzyme system. So they're not going to allow binding of the triad complex or the covalent interlinkage that we saw with chymotrypsin as an example. It doesn't happen there, but with those that would have phosphate groups, you can now see, I'm going to phosphorylate that serine, and I'm no longer going to be able to have that serine protease function because it's not going to be able to produce that hydroxyl group that I need to interact with the histidine because I've got that phosphorylation. Until another enzyme comes along and take that phosphate group off, then it's free, and I'm going to be able to then work with that particular enzyme. So again, the removal, phosphatases, we're going to look at those, and the addition of the phosphate group is the phosphokinase. So what we actually see, we're going to be studying this guy here, the phosphokinase and the phosphorylase, um, in regards to phosphorylation of a protein. So here we have the hydroxyl positions and the consumption of ATP in the kinase to produce ADP. Now, we need both sites phosphorylated. It's no good just having one site phosphorylated because that's also a point of regulation. If you don't have both, but remember, we're also changing the affinity maybe to the enzyme as we have one phosphorylational group being actually uh, phosphorylated, impacting the other hydroxyl group to be the right orientation to then give you access to the enzyme. So we might again have a sequential process of phosphorylation also occurring. It might be site A over site B. So with that commencement, we can get then phosphorylation occurring, the consumption of two moieties of ATP to then allow us to produce the phosphorylated enzyme, in this case, the phosphorylase A, the active form of the phosphorylase. So phosphorylase is a great little protein. We'll talk about that when we look at um, uh, um, glycolysis and uh, uh, glucose degradation in regards to activating an inactive form when we have enough energy. We don't need it. But we might need to have energy and it's going to actually consume ATP. And then we're going to have to actually pause investment to allow us to produce a phosphorylated version to do its job. So they have their own job to do once they are phosphorylated. But to regulate this, say we don't need it anymore, let's go and take molecular water in there and cause the production of inorganic phosphate, alleviating the phosphate groups off the hydroxyls, giving you the hydroxyl position back, changing its three-dimensional construction. So multiple sites of phosphorylation, again, provides multiple steps of regulation and sequential and sequential changes in the KD and KA value of the enzyme as well as its kinetics. Okay, so again, very complex enzymes regulating enzymes, regulating enzymes, other enzymes regulating their enzymes. Again, process of um, regulation. And we still, though we've been doing this type of analysis for the last um, 60, 70 years, we still don't have a full handle on a lot of the processes of enzyme regulation uh, and phosphorylation as a clear example. So here we have a few examples of um, ATP and other phosphorylational groups and other groups that cause impact in regards to um, three-dimensional structural changes um, and charge changes and group changes on amino acids. So here we have enzyme, we've seen this one enzyme of phosphorylation. Here we have 
a ventilation in regards to uh, tyrosine being targeted with ATP and giving us this particular byproduct. It's this time, it's not just taking the, the um, phosphate group as the active form, it's actually using the nucleotide base and sugar and one of the phosphates as the actual modulator and modifier. We have uh, acylation, acetyl sorry, acetylation, where we're using this compound. We're gonna come back to this compound. We've already been addressed. We've already seen this compound acetyl-CoA. Go back to the very first couple of lectures. We are gonna spend a lot of time on acetyl-CoA. Acetyl-CoA gives us this capacity to add this particular chemical functionality in regards to modifying uh, lysine moieties, as well as also alpha amino terminite. Okay. We have configuration, we have a whole load of methyl. Methylation is a very common one. We can come back to this one in regards to homocysteine a little later on, where we're going to see, again, a methyl group being attached to an enzyme, giving that process of regulation. But that Think about this also. We have now got a functional group on a protein. Though it might be a regulator, it can also be used as a substrate. So we can take this guy and do things with that chemical functionality and transfer it now to other products. So again, this is the amazing thing about biochemistry and our chemistry of life in regards to its multi-dynamic functionality. What is a regulator could be a substrate for another enzymatic system. And we'll see that as we go through the course. So how do we regulate enzymes then? How do we get enzymes into action when we need them? And how do we do that quickly? Because the last thing I want to do is, okay, I need to look at my DNA, okay, we need this new protein, let's get that DNA, being okay, now we're making the messenger RNA, tRNA, ribosome, yeah. No, you need it to be fast. You need your to switch on. You already need that protein in its correct structural function form, but regulated. So one single reaction, one single selected reaction, will have to bring that particular protein into activity. Sure, you're going to get situations where you're going to see the increase in expressional rates of proteins, but they take a long time. So if there's a longer requirement in regards to regulation and producing a product where you need more enzyme to do that particular job, sure, you're going to activate the uh, consequences of genetic transcription, translation, and allowing you to produce ultimately the protein. But again, the response time is so here we have the capacity to produce a product which is sitting and waiting to be activated. So here we have chymotrypsogen, trypsin, chymotrypsogen, Jesus, I need a drink. Um, <laughs> no, it's not alcoholic. Chymotrypsinogen. Oh. <laughs> um, so we have 100 to 245 amino acids, three-dimensional structure. It's going to have something that is going to be susceptible to a cleavage system from another enzyme. My God. So in this case, look at what happens. So the zymogen, so this is actually a zymogen, 
And what is going to be acted in phase by trypsin. But the funny thing is, um, this guy is also regulated as a pre-probed or cyanogen pre-enzyme. So here we have, let's go just look at the chymotrypsinogen first off. So it's inactive. Trypsin comes along as an enzyme, produces pi-chymotrypsin, which is the active form, and you cleave off the first 15 amino acids. Cleaving those first 15 amino acids off because it's so highly charged, that present part of that peptide fragment in the structure is causing its perturbment in three-dimensional structure and not allowing it to bind to the substrate. Now you remove it, gets into the right three-dimensional configuration, and then does its job. So it's doing its job, great. But the issue is, as we know, we've cleaved off the, the internal, it's irreversible. But oh no, we've now got pi chiron trypsin doing its job. Bang, 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 bang. We want to regulate it. We can't stick the darn 15 amino acids back onto the end terminal. We have to go through another process, and this one's really interesting because it does it itself. It's an autolysis. So he has a capacity to digest enzymes, right? Or digest peptides and proteins, as an enzyme does, this kind of trypsin that we saw before. So what he's going to do, he's going to reach back on himself and actually cleave himself in a particular time and orientation. And that might be due to a degradation of a single amino acid or another regular component that says, okay, you've finished it, you go. Let's get you out, you're finished. Because what happens, enzymes do wear out. They basically become modified, they become uh, structurally unstable because of a whole lot of additional external events that occur. Because again, they're reactive surface. Maybe destabilized because of a pH issue. Get them out. So in this case, we get autolysis, and again, we're cleaving, in this case, 149, 146 to 149, straight there, there's our aromatic amino acid, we produce a C terminal, a C fragment, which then gives us the inactivity from the 16 to the 245. So originally, here's the active one, autolysis produces this guy, done. So here we have these interesting components of autoregulation, as well as now external regulation in regards to enzymes working on enzymes. Now, as I said, uh, trypsinogen is also a pre-pro enzyme to produce trypsin, which is going to also be required in the kind of trypsin digest. This is regulated by an endo, sorry, an entropeptidase, which is a little bit more or less selective. So in this case, what we see, it hits a lovely little uh, position here in regards to this lysine isoleucine position. Leaves that, is the inactive form, and then we get the active form. The interesting thing is, these are the same proteins in regards to their size, 145, 145. It's just dependent on where they're being cleaved to produce different products. So a single strand of primary sequence in its three-dimensional structure, depending where it cleaves, might provide new functionality in regards to the specificity and selectivity of that particular enzyme. So many enzyme pathways, multiple points of regulation, but here is an illustration of the multi-use of a single strand of polypeptide material to produce multiple products which will then interact with each other 
to produce their regulation or control. This one is if you're going to go into medical school or vet school, you're going to have to learn this one. Don't worry about it now. It's complex, believe me. That represents nearly 80 years of research. Okay. You've heard about the Rachmaninoffs, the, the Russian royal family who had the blood disorder. Right. Queen Victoria was the prime you know, one who gave everybody the, the um, uh, factor, but it was actually her husband um, who basically poured it all in. So um, we have this cascade effect in regards to producing these components, particularly thrombin, protein C. These different factors are all involved in the process of a clot. So when you bleed, you are going to release blood. So you want to basically ensure that you clot and you retain your blood volume. So what we have here is a clotting process. So what we're going to see is this fibrin network being established. As you can see, it forms this little kind of sticky nobular ends to entangle red blood cells. That is your scab. Okay, so put it in the nicest way. Nice and dry network of red blood cells with this fibrin network, this material. This needs to be very highly regulated because the last thing you want to do is walk along the pathway and form one of these in your brain because you'll be dead. You'll have an aneurysm of some kind and a blockage and a stroke, maybe. Aneurysm due to the back pressure blowing out your blood vessel. So you have these thrombic uh, pathways which are going to have positive effect on these particular factors. These are individual proteins, enzymes. So you're gonna have all these points of regulation in regards to producing this particular clotting system. So my problem is, where's mine? Okay, this guy here, anti-thrombin-3. My family doesn't produce it too well. Um, they did a test on me when I was at Yale when I had my blood clot, St. Patrick's Day, 1999. Um, and basically, they said, oh, you don't have this anti-thrombin-3 deficiency. But they, obviously, my leg was blown up twice the size, three times the size. Um, you know, the blood was accumulating. They put a vacuum cleaner, a little scar, put a vacuum cleaner in my veins and sucked the clot out. It collapsed again, another clot formed. So it looks like a big piece of red, or black, actually, black stringy stuff they pump out. Um, the vascular surgeon said, oh, you're doing great. And she stands behind this lead wall, because they're doing it behind, you know, in real time x-ray. I'm sitting there and it feels like the vacuum cleaner's going to my head because I'm hearing the blood coming out of my brain. And so after three times, they gave me a stent, a metal stent, to keep the vein uh, open. So they did the testing, they said, you don't have the antithrombin-3 deficiency, but there's an issue here. You have blood clots and you have a family history of antithrombin-3. What do you have? So they brought this old hematologist out of retirement and he said, okay, we need to do a genetic analysis on you. And we got published in The Lancet. Here's a patient. 
Lancet's a very prestigious medical journal. So the family got all this genetic testing done, and I have a very rare isoform. It's still the function, it's still an enzyme. It's still present in the ELISA assay. Let me talk about ELISA. It's still present in the ELISA assay as a protein. Because remember, the ELISA assay is finding whether that protein's present. It doesn't indicate whether it's functional. So in this case, it's, oh, you have the protein present. So you don't have antithrombin-3. But I have a single point mutation, which basically causes that protein, which is different from my sister's and my father's in regards to changing the function of that protein. So they went, oh, so you have, you do have antithrombin-3, but it's a new isoform. We'll write it up. So they wrote it up. Obviously, I'm not an author, and I'm not identified in the article, but uh, that's okay. So what the point I want to make is, given the complexity and the essential part of this pathway in keeping your fluids, your blood, coagulating when needed, and also, importantly, non-coagulating, so this is where my problem is, I can, I can form blood clots quite happily. I can't dissolve them because this guy here. I cannot work on the, on the prothrombin to thrombin component to produce this guy here to give me basically the process to dissolve the blood clot. So again, reversibility. So this is showing one way. This actually, this is, I should really make this clear. This is just showing the pathway of forming clots. But you go to the reverse process to actually cause clot dissolving, uh, dissolving the clots association of these protein complexes to allow you to stop or dissolve the clot. These clots happen in you all the time. Um, so again, the issue is multiple enzymes involved. The reason they're being involved is because the, the essentialness of this pathway to be one rapid, to be highly, highly, highly selective, and to be only implemented when needed. You do not want, oh, it's a simple on and off light, you know? No clot, clot, hell, you're dead. Because as I said, you're clotting all the time. So in this case, it's a great example in regards to what uh, various people had in the various German and, or German royal families and, and the Russian royal families. So you know all their heritage, you know, they all interbred with each other. Russians, Germans, Span the Spanish, I think, too. Um, and then the British, the English. So again, it's just an issue, an example of the complexity. And actually, you can read about this in the book. It's actually a really good little story in regards to this anti-thrombin, oh, sorry, this uh, blood clotting disorder that the royal families have. So how do you get around it? You basically produce a synthetic or a expressed protein. So. When I had my blood clot, they put me on an experimental drug because obviously we don't know what drugs you gonna work for you because you're normal, but you're not normal. So they put me on this drug, this is called TPA, and it's made by these little goats in uh, New Hampshire. They genetically modify these goats and they milk them to excrete the protein in their milk and then they isolate the protein. And what it is, is basically a uh, prothrombin derivative, sorry, a thrombin derivative. So they, they gave me that and associated my clots. So again, um, I take a drug every day to ensure my blood is very, very thin, so I get bruising. If I cut myself, I usually you know, have to go to the hospital because I can't stop the bleeding. 
Um, so I hate to be in an accident. Um, so, yeah. Burden. But I tell you, so you all have genetic faults. It's whether it's come up. And, and as I said, I have family history. The family got tested. And once we actually found out that it was a different issue, everyone had to get retested genetically. And then it all came up. Pop, 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 All these isoforms specific. So we talk about enzymes. Isoforms, selectivity, specificity. Again, illustration of know what your family history is. So let's have a look. So I'll give you some terminologies. Now, the thing I want to talk about today, and I want to do two things. I'm not sure I have to do one of them. B is what's the important one here. Okay, let's do this one. Here we have another exam question. And this is from 2008. We've already done something very similar to this uh, on Monday in regards to being able to work out the um, Vmax and Km of a normal enzyme, right? So we can figure out, okay, where's our plot going in regards to producing the Vmax as we increase the concentration? Notice it's kind of no unit, so it's easy and nice. And in this case, we've got a whole load of values of substrate and a whole load of Vmax as the initial velocities occurring. Here's our Vmax. So where's our Vmax occurring? 100. About 100. So where's our Km value? Oh, you're good. Good, good. Because I've been yelling at you if you said 50. Good. So we now have a value of our normal enzyme plot. So here's our Vmax plot, substrate concentration, initial velocity, and we've now got a plot. Vmax, Km, and that is Vmax. Okay, so what happens now if we look at the issue of inhibition? So we now have an inhibitor. It could be regulated too. But let's see what happens. We get different numbers when we add the inhibitor first and then the normal amount of substrate that we've added previously. Look at the changes. The velocity of the enzyme has changed. Okay, the initial velocity of the enzyme has changed. Oh, excuse me. I'm going to eat more breakfast. Now, this time, where's the Vmax? Still 100, right? So the Vmax hasn't changed. But, I heard someone say that. The Km has changed. Because you assigned, okay, it's 100. Let's me look where we've got the 50 inhibitional velocity. Oh, there. Now we've got 0, 0 0.5 instead of, what was it before? So we've got 0, 0 0.5 with the non-inhibited and 0, 0 0.2 with the inhibited. So okay, we've got some, some information. So let's go through. What's the Vmax in the absence of the inhibitor? We've already done that, right? What's the Km? We've, we've kind of figured that out. So we've got this value and this value from the one that has no inhibitor. 
we looked at what is the presence of the velocity in the absence of the inhibitor. So in this case, let's have a look. So we've got the velocity, we can work out what will we use for C? The equation, the mechanics method equation. We have V max for this, don't use this one, we have it for this one, we have it for the Km, we have it for the V max. And therefore we can assign any substrate concentration that we desire. But what about now when we do it in the presence of the inhibitor? What do we have? We don't have a change in V max, right? So here's our one, I'll do it in a different colour. What did we say? The Vmax hasn't changed, right? But what has changed? The Km has changed, right? So, what are we going to use when we look at that velocity of that enzyme? We're going to use now the new Km value. Okay? We're going to use that Km value, but we still got the same Vmax. So what's that going to tell us about the type of reaction we have, the type of inhibition? Think about it. So let's have a look at our uh, Berkline-Weaver plot. All right? We've got the same Km value, have we? No. No. So we know this way, Somewhere this is going to be different, right? So let's put the two arbitrary points. They're going to be two different. Do they have the same V max? Yeah. Do they have the same V max? Yeah. Yes. Remember one over V max. What type of inhibition is that? Guys are good. So, I put a little table over here. Let's see how it comes along now. So, what changes in competitive inhibition? Km. What changes? Does the Vmax change in competitive inhibition? No. Let's put the word same. What changes in non-competitive non inhibition? What is non-competitive inhibition? What would it look like? It's a parallel shift. So what changes there? double the substrate on this reaction. Triple the substrate. What changes? Nothing changes. Right? So the enzyme action. If I added five molar urea, okay, what changes to the reaction? when I add and heat the enzyme up and it's a natural 
27 degrees enzyme. Means I mean when I say zero, I mean it's dead. Okay. So both change if you want to put both change. Dead. Everything changes. Neither. It's gone. It's dead. Let's put a little, little cross there. It's buried. What's going to happen when I heat it up? Also the same. It's going to it's going to die. So you've got to clearly understand what's occurring in these particular systems. How much time do I have left? Oh, yeah. All right. Okay, let's try. I'm just going to go see. So, we're going to look at what we call the rate limiting step for the enzyme. Okay? So we have enzyme plus substrate, forward reaction, backward reaction, producing the ES complex, which then gives you the capacity to produce the E plus P. Okay? But we know for a fact we have ES going to E P. Really. Okay? But we really just say ES, really. So we have K2, K1 in the forward, K1 in, no, sorry, K1 in reverse. The bigger picture, what we see here, is the substrate really going to reduce the product, right? We take the enzyme out. So what's the rate limiting step? K2, correct. A2 is the defining component which is going to be the rate limiting. So let's have a look at the rate limiting breakdown. We got KEQ. KEQ. Let's think of that in regards to our reaction. The products divided by the substrate. Let's take the first part of the reaction. So, we have our enzyme concentration and our substrate concentration and our enzyme substrate concentration to be considerable. So, if I'm looking at K minus 1, what would be my rate equivalent reaction? So, it's products divided by reactants. So, if we look at this, going this direction, who's my product? My reactants. This. What about K minus? Oh, sorry. sorry, I made a mistake. Right? No, no, I didn't. No, I'm right. Now I want to do. No, fuck. So we've just done the reaction divided the products, so that's right. My mistake. Right? We are now going to look at the K value in regards to the negative. So this one. Stop moving. 
Which is my product? E plus S. K1, E, S, are the reactants. This is a product. It's the product divided by the reactants, right? So, we're now doing this one. In this case, it's in the book too. The Km value 
is going to be equal, importantly, to the summation of what is being produced in regards to k minus 1 plus k2 divided by that of the k minus the k1. So, if you know the rates of 1, 2, and 3 in your enzyme reaction, you can estimate what the Km value is by utilizing K minus 1 plus K2 divided by K1. What I was going to try and show you is how you derive that. Okay? So I'm going to put that on notes on Lavi. And that, that concludes what the content 